Coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for another episode of Tech Talk with your host, Joey Klein. Well, I know I say it every time, but I'm sitting in front of people and it feels amazing. So welcome everyone to another edition of Tech Talk. Um, Today we have two really interesting um, co-founder CEOs with us. First, we're going to talk to Barkley Keith, uh, CEO of Artist Technologies. Thank you for having me, Joey. Absolutely. And then we're going to talk to John Wickman, uh, co-founder and COO of Maptician. Hey, Joey. Good Excellent. to be here. Yeah. All right, guys. Let's, let's get to it. So, uh, Barkley, we're going to start with you. Give me a high level on artists. You meet someone at a cocktail party. Um, you think they're kind of interested in what you do, but, you know, you don't want to give them, you know, two paragraphs worth. What's the headline? Yeah, absolutely. So Artist provides a platform for turnkey, real-time point-of-need lending. Uh, we allow banks and brands to weave in financial services into their product um, as features, really. Okay. So, you know, I think that most people are understand that there's been somewhat of a digital revolution when it comes to consumer lending, but they probably just have the headline version Dive deep in a little bit into what's happened in the past decade and how artists has capitalized on that trend. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we've seen a revolution both in alternative data and the ability to compute on a massive scale. You know, you can create huge compute clusters and do decisioning in near real-time manners because you have, you know, such robust data sources on the back end. Um, And this simply didn't exist 10 10 to 12 years ago. And so what we're seeing is we're starting to see – you know, real-time decisioning become more mainstream, but we're also seeing AI have a massive impact on the quality of those decisions. And so when we think about this from, you know, both a fraud and a credit standpoint, um, as well as an underwriting standpoint, you know, it's really exciting because, you know, not only can we make better decisions, we can make them in a real-time manner. Okay. So when, when you say real-time decisioning, you're talking about, you know, a consumer is actually, you know, going to apply for some sort of financial product. And whereas in the past, this might have been a lengthy underwriting process, um, you know, this is something that can happen in a fraction of the time. Absolutely. You know, 10 years ago, you're walking into a bank for a loan. You're literally talking to a banker. You're filling out an application. You know, five to seven days later, you're coming back in to even find out if that is approved, maybe get a loan dispersed within 10 days. You know, now start to finish, this is seconds because we're able to look at all that alternative data. We're able to really quickly render that into a very highly uh, synthesized decision that's also a very high quality. You know, you layer really good fraud on the ID and the individual as well. And it's just a better experience for both, you know, the bank itself because of the risk as well as the consumer because, again, it's a real time, uh, near real time experience. Okay, for, for the lay people out there, what is alternative data? So alternative data is getting outside of the standard FICO score and the standard credit decisioning metrics that most banks use. Um, this is everything from, you know, trended bank account data saying how you spend and how money comes in all the way through social and digital footprints and things of that sort. Interesting. Okay. So we are, we are getting a little bit more qualitative on the credit worthiness of an individual as opposed to just looking at the classics of, you know, What's their outstanding line of credit? You know, do they owe anything? Um, you know, what's their mortgage balance and what's their Equifax score? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we use all those, but we also layer in a whole, you know, plethora of alternative data sources, you know, like digital footprints to enhance that decision, um, you know, outside of those normal uh, features that you see. This is actually something that you, you mentioned going into a bank branch. And as a real estate guy, I often wonder to myself, why do we have physical bank branches? And any time that I see a new one built, I just can't understand it. 
right? And I, and I try to take myself out of my own behavior. I understand that, you know, there are plenty of different customer profiles there of who goes into a bank branch. But why does anyone need to go into a bank branch anymore? Why do they still exist? Yeah, I think you still have that personal relationship. And this is one of the reasons we're trying to empower those regional banks and up is because, you know, a lot of those bankers still have deep ties to those communities. They have deep business relationships with those community um, business leaders and things of that sort. And so you want to really empower them to help that community fully bounce back. And so why they have branches, I think it's to still have that relationship. But with COVID, I think you've only seen an acceleration on, on the bank side to really digitize a lot of these uh, tools that you know previously may have been a branch tool. Sure. Okay, so this is a tool that a financial institution can use for more quick, uh, faster decision-making when it comes to consumer lending. What about, a, what about a brand? What about a brand that has a high dollar value purchase, you know, um, you know, someone who wants to, I don't know, finance a washer, dryer, or a refrigerator or something like that? Yeah, so with the larger ticket size items, uh, you know, how we look at this is we're all API based and very modular. So if you are a brand and you use financial services, be it payments or, you know, kind of to your point, installment loans, we help you weave this directly into your existing process to ensure that it's a clean user experience end to end and you retain that brand end to end. A lot of the fintech 1.0 companies, you know, they're really consumer brands because they inject themselves into that process mm-hmm. and they take the consumer out of that normal flow. And so we help them continue to own that flow while also monetizing a new channel. So here's, here's the complicated piece about, and maybe this is the opportunity as well, about what you're doing. You're serving multiple masters. You don't really have a single end user that you're designing this for. You've got lending institutions and consumers as well as brands themselves. So your experience is very different depending on who is actually using this technology. I imagine that can be very exciting. I imagine it can also be a little bit uh, daunting on how to develop a standardized piece of technology. Yeah, so lucky for us, we actually designed it from the ground up to be very versatile where we could move into these different verticals with very little overhead from a tech standpoint. Um, For us, it's really just configuring different products and portfolios. Part of what we did is integrate the whole value stream end-to-end where, you know, we can go from that front-end customer interaction via via our form or an API all the way through to servicing collections with all the decision pieces. And so it's really a turnkey solution. So it's very easy to weave in and apply this technology to a whole bunch of different verticals. And that's what's really exciting for us. Okay. So so let's back up for a little bit and, and talk about you. So, um, like, I'm always interested in entrepreneurs' leadership style and where they get that from and how they take that into their organization. You know, you've got a military background. You also have a corporate background. Let's start with military, you know, because that was sort of at the the beginning of your career. Um, And I'd love to get a sense of how you take that experience into the workplace with you every day. So, I did six years in the Army prior to college. Uh, For me, that certainly shaped my leadership style. You know, and it's everything from how you create the culture and take care of your people to their benefits, to the healthcare and everything, you know, to how you actually structure the work ethic of your teams. And so that really, you know, especially leading early on in my career, uh, you know, in Afghanistan and things of that sort, I think that really guided, you know, what I do today from building this company, you know, culturally, especially. We take care of our people. I expect my leaders to be, you know, stand up and also take responsibility for their actions while also take care, taking care of their people. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where our people are truly the forefront. And I think in fintech and a lot of startups, you know, that's usually not the case. They're just trying to ship a product when culture becomes like a secondary footnote at the end of it. For us, that's something we were very deliberate about from the start. And I'd say my military leadership guided that because of the importance of having loyal people to stick with you. 
And I think COVID has really reinforced that for us. You know, as a team, we were able to stick together and continue moving forward versus kind of scattering and not knowing what to do. Sure. I'm, I'm curious if you, you know, you, you probably have other leaders in the organization that don't have a military background. I'm wondering if there has been a, um, not necessarily a clash, so to speak, but just that, you know, maybe at, at least at the beginning of learning to come together as leaders, a little bit of different styles that everyone is kind of getting over to settle on one cohesive narrative. I think throughout my career, I've had to really focus on, you know, getting away from that military leadership style where it is a little more barking orders and being very direct and a little more aggressive to something where a little more empathy comes out. And it's more of a conversation versus being, you know, a little more aggressive. And so with this experience, you know, I think it has really come together well and our culture shows that um, because of the fact that I've tried to, you know, sand down those rough edges, I guess you could say, that comes from that military leadership, uh, you know, early on. Sure. No, that, that makes sense. And, and look, you brought up COVID, and of course, it is, it is the topic du jour uh, all the time. Um, and so, you know, as a leader, how are you, what, what, are, you, what are you changing, right? If, if, if anything, right, is, is the product of such a nature that, you know, it's sort of seamless in this process because we really are talking about digitizing what is generally an analog physical process. Um, I'd be interested in that as well as just how your employees are working and how you're dealing with productivity or, or lack thereof. So we've seen acceleration on the product side because we are contactless by default. And so a lot of these banks, as I mentioned, are you know, starting to accelerate their digital uh, initiatives. And so there's a contact product by default they can bolt on as a turnkey solution. And so for us, that's, that's been kind of a positive. But at the same time, when COVID hit, all the banks shut down for like three months. Right? Call it what it is. We had no conversations. Yeah. As a startup, you know, it was really hard. Um, to kind of keep that energy and that culture moving forward very rapidly when you're really kind of stalled because you can't go create that external energy that would no- normally pull energy when the company. And so I think as a founder, you know, you're really driving that to try and ensure everyone's on the same path. Everyone's very focused still. I think it's very easy to lose focus in something like this. And so as a, as a leader, you know, my whole team was phenomenal, keeping everyone focused and on task and moving towards that goal, right? Our goal didn't change. We laid out that goal and we've been hitting, still hitting towards that goal. And so it's one of those things where even though COVID hit, it's a change of pace. We moved to work from home. Um, but at the same time, we kept chugging along. We kept focused, and we just focused on those things that we could control. Sure. Well, I'm, I'm curious how you keep yourself centered because, look, obviously you as the lightning rod at the top, it's, it's your job to be honest but also exude positive energy and move everyone forward. But, you know, let, let's be honest, right? Your clients and your prospects go silent for several months, especially as a young organization. Um, that's, that's nerve-wracking, right? And, 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 and you can come at that whether you're a commissioned salesperson or whether you're a CEO. Um, you know, you, you and I both talked about our little kids, and um, it's a lot. And so I'm curious, look, there, there, we don't have to go into it in depth, right? There was no doubt, I'm sure, times when you were feeling it. But what do you do to keep your emotions centered there so you can be good for your team? Yeah, so I'm lucky to have surrounded myself with really good leaders, and so I lean on them, but also, you know, for my mental health, I meditate and do yoga. You know, those are vital for me to kind of stay, to your point, centered. I think in times like this where things get really stressful, you know, it's really important to take a second, pause, breathe, and just have a moment and then get back to it, right? doesn't matter how hard you're going. you got to stop and take a breath every once in a while. And so I try to manage to do that at least once a day. Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to – I'm sort of thinking – some, sometimes I try and take like a 30,000 foot view and like, what would this conversation have looked at 
like I don't know, fifty years ago, right? <laughs> would 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 be sitting around talking about not that there's those are both very good things to do. Um, in addition to other ways of stress relief, right? Would, would you hear a CEO talking about doing uh, meditation and yoga, right, for stress relief? I don't know. Pro- probably not, but it probably would have benefited them. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. I mean, I, that's something else I picked up in the military that it just stuck with me since. Yeah. It's really effective, and so I think. You know, I encourage my, my coworkers to also do stuff like that. It's, it's very important. But I don't know. I think, I think to your point, I, have, I don't know how would you be dealing with this 50 years ago. Good question. Yeah. Um, okay, let, let's go into some of your work experience because you've got a robust background in financial services that is probably in f- – everything has led you to where you are today. Of course, that's an you know, obvious statement you can make for anyone wherever they are. But, you know, your experience, um, you know, whether it's with big banks, hedge funds, financial technology – Take me through the evolution of those different workplaces you've been in and what all led you to say, okay, now I'm going to do something on my own. So post-military, I went to undergrad and started to really discover entrepreneurship, uh, you know, as an actual topic. You know, I hadn't really been exposed to it traditionally in in a more structured sense. And so I did an undergrad in finance, but I really fell in love with entrepreneurship. Uh, Moved to grad school, got through grad school, and ultimately ended up at Bloomberg in New York, which, you know, at the time was a fintech innovator. You know, they really revolutionized bond trading as an industry, and they created a massive structural shift in how people did business on the bonds floors. And so, you know, when I was at that company, they were super innovative, a lot of positive energy, great culture. But long term, I didn't see myself staying there. And so ultimately, I did a master's in finance, moved to a hedge fund in Chicago where I was a second hire, got a ton of exposure again to those structural shifts where we were able to see massive changes in how people did business. And we invested around them. Uh, you know, ultimately left that hedge fund, moved around a little bit, uh, ending up at a fintech unicorn here in Atlanta um, that's in the credit space. Did a couple years there, uh, ultimately was there through IPO. And I saw fintech 1.0 as incrementally better than what existed, but not truly the best customer experience because of the fact that a lot of them were, you know, simply originators or something of that sort with, you know, not phenomenal underlying tech. And so we really set out to create the underlying tech to accelerate the structural shift. We believe this is truly a better way of the loan, you know, the actual loan process, right? That point of need, capturing that moment when you actually need that loan versus even, you know, five, 10 years ago, it's just spam them out, go to your banker, do something else where it's a whole process from the consumer side, right? As a technology, we always want to be there and available when you actually need that loan, you know, with that merchant, regardless of where you're at. And so are you primarily marketing to a brand or financial institution and then it's, you know, up to them to kind of push this out to their customers or you are marketing to everyone? So we, if we partner with a larger brand or a larger, you know, regional bank or something, that's what we help them monetize that channel by providing a lot of the automated tools that uh, ultimately lead to the, the gen source and the onboarding of the merchant. We've automated all these processes as well. So a lot of these larger networks and banks are sitting on these huge commercial networks and a huge amount of data, really, yeah. that can be used to underline and make better decisions on these uh, these populations to where that they can then create a revenue channel that didn't exist before. Well, and I imagine that's uh, the, the, the struggle and the opportunity, right? It's like, okay, you can pitch a financial institution on the efficacy of this product, and they can say, we love this. Let's do it. But if their network isn't taking advantage of it, then what's the point? Absolutely true. And that's why we really try to control that process and get our hands in there uh, and automate as much as we can because it's, it's also in our best, uh, you know, our, it's, it's in our best uh, interest to make sure that that's done correctly. Sure. Look, you got, you got to sell on multiple fronts, and that can be a little bit of a more complicated sales cycle. But it is of necessity because 
if someone is reviewing six months in how this product is working and they say, well, no one likes it, no one's taking advantage of it, even if the reason is no one knows about it, right? You know, that's uh, the result is still the same. Yeah, I think a lot of startups that work with banks, they do that. They expect to just plug a button in and hope it works, right? And then look six months later and you're like, wow, you had three signups. That was great. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, so you're... Um, you know, you get to the end, uh, you know, you go, you go IPO at a, you know, local, um, you know, credit organization and you say to yourself, all right, now it's time to sort of jump out on my own. Had you had enough corporate experience at that point, enough introduction to entrepreneurship where you had the idea and it was, it wasn't that hard, right? As in like, you didn't fret too much emotionally or mentally. It was just like, okay, yeah, this makes sense. Let's do it. I wish I could tell you I was that confident, but that was, it was a massive leap, right? Call yeah. it as I have a family. I think it's one of those things where whenever you take the jump from corporate to a startup life, you know, it's, it's a lot of risk and it's stressful. Um, you know, I don't care who you are. It's, it's a big decision. And so for me, I think it felt like the right time. My wife was supportive. We talked about it as a family and said, this is the right thing for us. And so that, you know, for me, was important to move forward, to have that support network in place. And then also, again, I had those leaders around me who are now doing this with me who were saying, hey, we're ready to do this. This is the right time. We see the opportunity. We also had an investor who was ready to go. And so it worked out timing-wise as well. Yeah. When we talk about access to capital, and I know your, your story, you had a you know, very supportive investor who was in your network early on. I imagine at some point, um, you know, you'll probably be going to look for a larger uh, round of funding. Um, you know, I'd be curious about your thoughts on the Atlanta ecosystem um, for technology funding, where it's been, where it is. Um, you know, I hear from a lot of people, yes, it's better than it was 10 years ago, but it's I still shouldn't have to go to the West Coast to get funding. Um, and as you that's probably in your mind at some point. I'm just curious about what your thoughts are. Yeah, as a Roswell native, uh, I kind of watched this community progress from what I consider to be only private equity and like high end money. To what, you know, today it's getting better, but another reason that I kind of moved to New York right out of undergrad was because the money is really in New York, San Francisco, and those places. I think the ecosystem still has a ton to a ton to grow, and it's still very kind of that later stage money. There's a few true seed firms, but the ones that call themselves you know seed nair and other places you know B firms, right? And I think that's the Southeast generally. That's been historically what it's been. It's been a, a, a plethora of angels and folks who are looking for really good deals. But if you're looking for sizable money, you're going to New York or the West Coast. So, so here's my hypothesis on why this happens. I'd be curious about your take. So we've got traditionally the money in this city, let's say pre-95, okay? Um, even post, but you know, still to a large degree, are people who have made a lot of money in an asset class like real estate, for example, okay? Which is just an entirely different type of investment, return, risk tolerance, um, and just type of product, and, you know, the people that have popped up that have really made real exits, there's certainly more of them than there used to be. But because I think we're still in somewhat of our infancy of being a technology-heavy city, which, which we are at this point, but it's just there haven't been those massive exits to really provide a good network of people who are then plowing that money back in. You still have, I think, a lot of folks who have money in this town, certainly, but are just used to a different type of asset. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're spot on with that. Yeah. And, and again, it's like, I, I, for, for those listening, I don't say any of this as a, I say this with loving criticism, right? Like, I, I think it's gotten much, much better, um, as have many things in the technology scene here in Atlanta, but it's just continuing to evolve. Yeah, I mean, we're lucky to have such intelligent people. I mean, the, all the Fortune 500 here has attracted some of the best talent you can imagine. 
And so, you know, I look at my team and they're from all over, you know, company-wise, a ton of fintech experience. I don't think we could gather the same quality of team in the same place anywhere else in the country. I, I often joke that I feel like, uh, you know, a third of the show is sort of the Metro Atlanta Chamber pitch um, of why you should be in Atlanta, right? And, and, and we're, I'm, I'm talking to both of you who are kind of Atlanta folks here, but on other shows, you know, everyone from around the table, not planned whatsoever, have relocated from very, very different regions and even very different countries to be here. And, and it kind of still blows me away. It sounds like for you that when you decided to take the entrepreneurial leap, there was no question that you would start your company in Atlanta. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the fintech community is phenomenal. We're creating a cluster here. Um, the resources, the talent, yet ATDC, ATV. I mean, there's just there's so many resources here for you to grow a business that it's phenomenal. And I think cost of living and quality of life, it's hard to beat. Yeah. Uh, well, look, you're, we're, we're all preaching to the choir here, right? Sometimes yeah. it, can be, it can be a little bit boring, all uh, being cheerleaders and agreeing on the same thing, but it, it does happen to be true. Fair, fair. Yeah. Um, all right, so a- anyone listening who wants to find out a little bit more about artists, how do they do that? Uh, we're online at heyartist.com, or you can email me directly at b-k-e-i-t-h at heyartist.com. Right. All right. Uh, Barclay, thanks a lot for joining. Hey, thank you. Okay. John, how you doing, buddy? Great. How are you, Joey? Good. So, uh, you know, I am, um, I very specifically do not talk um, too much about commercial real estate um, on this show. It is designed to be around technology, and so my own industry I kind of keep to myself. Um, you are probably, there have been a couple other real estate adjacent technologies, but you're probably the first guy I have on where we are going to be very focused on commercial office space. Um, so uh, we, we, I think we both have a lot to say on this topic. Yeah, for sure. It's an important space uh, right now and uh, trying to help companies sort through it. Yeah. Uh, and you're probably seeing that as well. I, I am, and I'd love to kind of share some, some more stories and predictions as well. So let's start with high level. What is Maptition? So Maptition, uh, we're a software company. We have a, a cloud-based uh, software-as-a-service um, platform that's really around uh, workplace management and helping companies uh, right now primarily to um, you know, essentially take uh, an organized and safety-conscious approach for um, getting back into their offices uh, whenever that might be, and, and uh, that may vary city to city. So really giving them that flexibility um, to reuse a very um, expensive, obviously, a costly asset uh, that they're currently not being able to use in, in the way they originally intended. Uh, the second big area is helping them to establish a foundation of really a flexibility of how they use that space so that as they consider what does the future office look like for us and how do we use it, that they will have the tools um, to really be able to move in that direction. Uh, and that, that may mean uh, reduced cost, obviously. It also may mean reduced density so they don't have folks crammed in quite so much as, uh, as some of those uh, plans had previously um, sort of been in, I guess, in, in vogue, if you will. Maybe not very well liked, but, um, you know, but certainly in place. Yes. And, and you don't come at this from a commercial real estate background. You come at this as more of an, you know, internal, you know, high-level uh, corporate operations background. And so I'd be interested to, you know, look, you've been a number of sizable organizations here in Atlanta that led you to this, you know, very similar to Barclay to go out and start your own thing. What did you see in those organizations that gave you the spark for Maptition? Yeah, it's a great question. And um, really, my, my overall background is really has been focused on software and uh, services, software services for my entire career. Um, but really, those experiences, um, I'd probably say two or three of them really played into that. The first is really the 
uh, the years I spent with um, my two co- current co-founders, you know, Paul Yurick and Nick Yurick. We all worked together at a software services company um, by the name of Expansion, headquartered in Alpharetta, but then offices across the Midwest and in India. And so there was just really a lot of real estate to keep up with. And I think um, really the impetus of the company and why, you know, Nick, Nick Eric, who was the, um, the, you know, the kind of the core initial founder, uh, really was around this idea of, hey, we want to try to solve a problem that we experienced when we were trying to grow and, you know, in leadership roles and grow a company up when we were all at expansion. And that was really a, an issue we had. So we constantly would be surprised by running out of space or coming close to running out of space. Um, you know, when we went there as leaders, it was hard to understand, you know, who was who and um, really just engage. So we said, hey, we want to solve that really from a space visibility perspective and then really bring a richness of, of information out of that space um, in, in a very visual way that we felt there was a huge opportunity there. Um, and then obviously, you know, we had the um, the COVID and the lockdowns um, occur and, and that did really change our, our obviously our perspective and um but luckily, we had a good foundation, a very solid foundation that uh, Nick had, had architected and built that we were then able to build off of and, and really, I'd say, uh, start to build solutions very specific to the needs we see and hear about. Sure. You know, I would. I, I do want to get into what you're doing now and how you're pivoting a little bit um, with the reality of COVID. But I, I, I want to go back to what drove you to do this because... I actually think it's very telling that you're not from a commercial real estate background. Um, I, I frankly don't think you'd be doing what you were doing if you were from a commercial real estate background. And my thesis is that because commercial real estate is such a physical, tangible asset, generally, the people who are involved in this industry, whether it's from a professional services brokerage standpoint like I am, um, you know, or from a development or financing standpoint, are, you know, Generally, they are very comfortable with that type of product and type of asset that you can touch and see and feel. And so not to say that they're Luddites, but technology isn't really forefront. And and I think a lot of the big firms, including mine, have come a really long way in terms of developing technology to help our clients operate better and, frankly, to help guys like me do my job um, more, more efficiently. But it is one of the later great industries to be disrupted and virtualized. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, after, um, so after leaving expansion, really with the goal of sort of, um, I'd say cutting my teeth in a larger organization, because prior, both expansion and prior to that, it was all, you know, sub 750 person companies, really not in that enterprise. So um, from there, I moved to uh, Teradata. So mm-hmm. Teradata, obviously a, a large uh, multinational, um, and that, provided not only the opportunity to work, function, and lead within a large organization, but mm-hmm. also uh, because I was on the services side of the business, really had the, the honor and the pleasure to interact with um, some of the most well-known brands and some of the largest companies across sectors, right, across the U- U.S., and, and uh, who th- they themselves had offices spread throughout the world. Uh, and that really provided additional perspective on this whole idea of, of well, how is office space used how easy or difficult is it to interact with office space? Um, is it effectively used? Hey, you know, it's a Wednesday and two-thirds of these seats are empty, and it's a Friday, and you'd think it was a Saturday because there's nobody around. Yeah. And the, the constant tension you'd see between uh, the business side saying, we need more space, and the, the facilities or the real estate operations side saying, well, we always 
visit and there's nobody around. So how do you need more space? And so there was really a, a tension there. And so when I um, had the opportunity to reconnect with Nick and really talk about, um, you know, what he was up to and some of the things I was working on, and we said, hey, you know, you know, really think there's something here. Um, and so that was my hunch. And then I really worked to probably over about a three or four month period, really worked to validate that. I spoke to as many people as I could in commercial real estate um, who had that view of the of the tenant, right? Uh, spoke to business leaders and, and how they interacted and interfaced with it. And so really um, through that and a number of conversations, we said, hey, you know, there's really an opportunity here and um, there's maybe there's a problem to be solved. And software is a great way to solve problems if you can do it well. And obviously the SaaS model is very nice in terms of not having to, you know, get, get a locally installed, you know, software that you have all these variables to deal with. It really makes it a, a much nicer, uh, you know, way to way to um, drive value and deliver value to customers. Yeah, that that clash between the business unit and real estate is one that we we encounter so often. And it it seems like what you're trying to do at the heart is put numbers and data behind what is typically a subjective or qualitative statement, right? So not relying on anecdotes, not relying on, all right, well, you know, okay, business unit, I visited the office, you know, two times last year, and this is what I saw. And, and very well, look, the, the assessment might be correct, but let's at least affirm with data that it's correct. So let, let's dive a little bit deeper into how the technology actually works. So let's say you have an organization with 50 offices around the world, okay? What, what does the Maptician software actually do to help them un, help a company understand if they're utilizing um, their space properly? Yeah, so it's, it's a great question. Really, that's changed a lot, right, in the last three months, just in terms of the perspective. You know, pre-COVID, it was really about um, driving visibility across those offices, whether they be, you know, 5, 10, or 15, or, or 50, um, and really saying, well, gee, how many, how many seats do I have left that are available, assigned seats, and then maybe designate some as, as reservable or hoteling and kind of have a balance there. And so that was that was. A very valuable thing, especially for people who had responsibility for that space and sat in one office and had to sort of imagine or trade PDF files, right, around, you know, what was going on or people did walkthroughs to figure out available seating. So that was a great problem to solve. Um, But, you know, COVID has changed that, right? It's changed how people think about space. Um, And I think part of what we're trying to do is say, hey, with Maptician, um, it's not just about, hey, can I cut my space? Of course you could and you could could drive that and, and that could be a primary objective, but it's really also about, hey, do we, can we create a, a work environment that's maybe more appealing to our current employees and those future employees we want to recruit and hire sure. as growth continues? And so we provide, through the technology, really the ability for uh, companies to utilize a given seat uh, in a variety of ways based on the needs of that office and based on the needs of their company at the time. So that could be reservable seat. It could be an assigned seat. It could be something that they work to apply, you know, essentially turned it into a flex seat uh, and really drive a lot of value. So um, we're not out there, you know, advocating that people um, drop huge amounts of real estate. We think um, the office really provides huge value uh, to um, to the culture and community and onboarding and all of that. We, so we really advocate for a balanced approach. Uh, we When people ask us, and, and um, a number of them are asking us because they're looking for answers in this environment. Yeah. Well, look, I think that... Um like you're probably having very similar conversations that I'm having. And I think there will be organizations that make an overcorrection. They're going to say, okay, well, this is how it is right now, um, and they're going to make a five- to ten-year decision um, that is probably a little bit of an overcorrection. 
Uh, and look, this obviously depends on how you know your people work and your different departments interact with each other. But you know, most people that I've talked to, they they believe the fundamentally that there is a place for the office, right? They believe fundamentally that you cannot build a company culture and you cannot build friendship and trust and camaraderie amongst different employees if they never see each other and they never meet each other firsthand, right? You would essentially have to take an organization at its current place right now and just stop its growth, right? Because what do you do with new people coming on board who have to understand, um, you know, company protocols and get involved and be integrated into the team? You just can't do that as effectively if you're always virtual. Now, it will probably exacerbate some people who maybe certain leaders couldn't, quote-unquote, trust them to work from home more than, you know, a half a day a week when the cable guy comes. And now they've seen, look, that that is completely feasible. And so we're probably going to see a little bit more mobility and desk sharing. But um, I think the balanced approach that you're talking about is what I see the, the best companies looking for. It's let's really understand how we can learn from what's happening right now, but also take this in um, – you know, in light of larger trends and, and not, you know, just say, all right, no office anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly there's an imperative out there. You know, I saw it in, from a technology perspective when I was at Teradata, there was certainly a, a hurting mentality towards um, open source and Hadoop. Yeah. And, and some customers actually moved completely away and said, we can run everything on Hadoop clusters. And, you know, in a similar way, a number, most, if not all of those customers a year or two later came back and said, yeah, we, we sort of, we, we overestimated, you know, what we could get down there. There really is, there's a, there's a blend here. And I, I see some parallels, right, except it extends much more worldwide and, and cross industry and really cross size. We're seeing interest and getting requests to speak with companies as, as little as, you know, 75, 50, 60, 75 people mm-hmm. who say, hey, I, I do need to get back to the office, but I also need to use this space more effectively because for them, Going from um, a 70-seat office to a 100-seat office is a very, very significant expense jump. Yeah. And if they can use that space that they have to support them through those 100 or 110th employee, that's huge for them. And that's really what we provide. And then for a larger um, organization, it's the same thing. You know, they may say, hey, we want to drop a floor um, here and just go to go to three instead of, instead of four or something like that. Um, and so... While that's not immediately top of mind, especially for those who don't have leases within the next two years coming up, um, it's there and they know, hey, this is a foundation I can leverage at the right time to, to do that. Sure. So. Uh, look, I, 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 um, I'm sure you've been on the phone with people as well where they say, you know, we could do without, you know, this measurement of space or, you know, this number of desks. And sometimes that is correct, but I'll bet you there's a lot of times when your technology actually puts numbers behind that and you say, actually, you can't. Or actually, you could get rid of more. And that's the whole point about using, you know, data for insights as opposed to just simply, you know, putting your finger in the air and seeing which way the wind blows. Absolutely. And we originally designed Maptician to really support across that, whether it was the CFO um, or the chief, uh, you know, people officer or a business leader. It really, Maptician would provide a, a, value, a valuable um, uh, use case, right, to each of those groups. Um, really across, again, HR, finance, operations, and, and real estate facilities, obviously. So I, I want to talk to you a little bit about similar topic that I talked to Barclay about um, in regards to your leap to entrepreneurship. Curious what you've taken from the other organizations at which you've worked to this 
you know, let's let, let's be honest, right? Early stage companies, it's a very different style of work environment. Not to say that you know people aren't people and we don't collaborate the same ways, but um, now you in a co-founder role at your own shop, you know, what what are you taking and maybe what are you not taking from some of the organizations you've worked at? Yeah, it's a great question and and. and you know, sometimes you don't know what you don't know. And I think that was really what my goal was when I went to go uh, really the enterprise company route is, is really to see you know, how did a large enterprise organization, how did they sell, how did they manage, how did they deliver, and really understand that. Because I, I was pretty sure I, I didn't have all the answers, you know, having worked at primarily smaller companies. And so um, certainly from the small company side, you know, you get the, the view of um, – sort of what is it to be in a small team where people are wearing multiple hats, uh, the need to really make sure that that structure and those expectations are in place, uh, that there's consistency, you know, for the team members and that they, they feel empowered and that they're excited about, you know, where they come to work, even if you don't have, you know, massive budgets to, to do things like that. And you go to the larger company side and you say, well, hey, here, here are some controls that, you know, some who maybe st- – I've always worked in large companies, feel are, are onerous um, or onerous. And, and you can look at those. For example, when it was at Teradata and, and they ran, you know, a P&L on a project. I mean, they, were, they ran every single number so tight. that If you dropped below, you know, 1% off of your, you know, your targeted numbers, somebody was asking you questions. So somebody say, that, hey, that's, that's too much structure, but it's probably better than too little structure because you can have a lot of leakage there when you're trying to run a company and understand where your costs are going. And so I'd say really that structure um, and a lot of that, how do, how do large companies operate? Because when you are a larger company, you have to do things in a much more consistent, documented way for a whole host of reasons, from practicality to, you know, just consistency for employees and mm-hmm. things like that. So I'd say seeing both of those, about the, the, the agile um, and being nimble as a small company, being able to move quickly, make decisions quickly and go through, and then some of the positive elements of structure and control from those larger companies, as well as the ability really to scale. I'd say that was something when I, when I went to Teradata, which was the first very large company, uh, really being able to take a group from, you know, five to seven to 15 to $20 million in revenue in a relatively short order, you know, within just a couple, two to three years, um, really puts a different perspective in your mind on scaling versus being, you know, five million trying to go to ten million, which might seem insurmountable. You know, in a in a small company. So I'd say that was probably one of the most beneficial things for me, is it gave me a new perspective of, of growth around revenue and and a company size and how rapidly it could really go, and that didn't have to be a crazy experience. I, I could definitely see that. Um, you know, for for organizations at you know the stage that Maptition is at. It's important to have something that you're really good at and to focus on that obsessively. But I am curious if you see this technology in the future being applicable to other forms of real estate, retail space, industrial space, you know, whatever it might be. Is that something on the horizon or you guys are just – you are laser focused on office? No, it's a, it's a great point. And I think your background, you know, maybe led you to ask that question because for sure uh, we're seeing value there. And, and I know you – probably deal across the real estate spectrum. So uh, one example is colleges and universities, right? So we're working with a large state university in the Midwest that is at least first, right? Saying, Hey, we've got huge, a a huge amount of real estate assets here. Um, And then we need to make sure as these students are coming back, you know, in that those really the parents 
know that, hey, we've done something other than send the staff out with tape measures, right, to figure out how to arrange these classrooms, which seats to close, which seats to leave open, what are the paths of travel in terms of uh, one way in, you know, one way out, if there's, you know, different types of things at the door, hand sanitizer. It's really to give those parents comfort that, hey, there's a, you know, there's a re- I feel comfortable sending my student back into campus, right? And that doesn't take a ton of time, right? I mean, because we can map those spaces very, very quickly for them, and then they can use those as a, as a go-by. And even those that have already um, done some of that, which most have, obviously, it gives them a, a baseline to work against. So we're seeing it there for college and universities. We also see it for a large property, you know, such as retail or somebody who owns a large retail space and really wants to drive visibility and can access that from their phone, uh, the, you know, the Mapitician mobile um, app or through their desktop, really to just have that visibility to that asset that they have. That, that higher education example is a very interesting use case there. Uh, that, I mean, that in and of itself is a massive opportunity with the disruption that that field is going to be seeing, I think, for many years to come, um, just given everything that's happening right now. Yeah, it, it's huge. There's, there's, a really, there's opportunity all over the place. And, um, one of the biggest you know, challenges we face on a day-to-day basis is, is where to focus, yeah, right? I, um, I mean, even if, um, you know, we were to get um, X number of millions of dollars of, of venture money uh, tomorrow, we'd still need to work through those priorities because, we, you know, you don't want to spread yourself so thin that you can't be effective in, in any one of those opportunity channels. That really is sometimes the hardest thing, right, to, to see all of this, these potential opportunities out there and really have the discipline to shut 80% of them out of your mind and, and not feel like you're being irresponsible doing that. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I've, I've, I've sort of said, you know, the saying, bird in the hand and two in the bush. It's, you know, we're dealing with, uh, you know, 100 in the hand and, <laughs> you know, 20 million in the bush. Yeah. And, uh, and it, so it's, it's, a harder, it's a harder thing, but you have to just stay focused and, and you, just, you just go after them one at a time and, or 10 at a time or whatever your, your scale allows and, uh, and to just, just keep working and listening and, and never losing those fundamentals of, of customer service and making sure that they're at the end of the day, they're getting value and, and really the value that they intended to purchase, um, you know, Maptition for. So we're very focused on that. Um, and we're trying to do that more and more efficiently so that, you know, we can get, get them to that value without having to spend as much individual uh, time. Although that's always going to be a part. It's just sort of in our, in our uh, in our DNA, if you will, in terms of how we've built companies in the past. Yep, that's great. Well, look, re- really enjoyed having you on. If uh, people listening want to learn more about Maptician, how do they do that? Sure. Well, our website's a great place. That's uh, Maptician.com, M-A-P-T-I-C-I-A-N.com. And then uh, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, John Wickman, W-I-C-H-M-A-N-N. And uh, my email is just john.wickman at Maptician.com. Great. All right, guys. Great tech talk. Thanks for coming on. Thank you.